Well, welcome. Thank you for being here with me. Um, it's good to be back. I was gone last week, and um, I missed you guys. Missed seeing your smiling faces up at me, so thanks for coming on back. Um, Jake Ingram did an awesome job last week in uh, bringing the message. Can we just give him a round of applause for that? Thank you, Jake, wherever you are. It's um, just being a pastor and having someone being willing to, to give you a pulpit relief uh, and teaching when you need to get away. We had a funeral to go to, um, and it was, uh, it was a, a blessing to be able to do that. So um, it's good to be here. It's good to be back. And, and I'm excited because we get to start a new series this morning. That's right, this morning, brand spank a new series. If you smell new car smell, the new series is here. It's wonderful. It's exciting. Maybe I'm the only one that can smell that. Never mind. That's something different. Um, but let me ask you guys a question. As we begin this series, um, let's talk about anxiety for a minute. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but maybe in your heart, raise your hand. Uh, any of you struggle with anxiety? Um, maybe, maybe right now you're struggling with anxiety. Maybe last week you struggled with anxiety. Or maybe this is just uh, an off-again, on-again trend in your life where you find yourself dipping deep into this um, thing called anxiety and you can't seem to shake it. Well, I don't think that's a new problem, and I don't think... Um, uh, I think it's been something that humans have struggled with uh, ever since we uh, were created. So I want to talk about it a little bit, and I, and I want to talk about it in relation to the series that we're beginning. We're going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Um, it's going to be a wonderful series, and, and specifically our psalm today, Psalm 121, I think addresses this anxiety thing, uh, and it addressed it back when the psalmist wrote it, and it's, and it's evident that it, um, it, it works today as well. So... Um, but before we dig deep into that psalm, we got to talk about poetry, too, for a minute, because I think poetry is one of those things that today in our literal cultural it's culture, it's really hard to kind of get to the depth of what the, the poet is intending. So I'm going to read a couple of my favorite poems. Um, the first one I'm going to read, and I'll see if you guys can guess who wrote it. This is a modern poet, very popular poet. Let me, let me read to you this line, and... Um, Maybe you can guess. Here we go. Are you, are you guys ready? You guys good? Okay, good. Here we go. Um, you can see I'm faking and my heart's not breaking because I'm not feeling anything at all. Anybody want to take a crack? I'll give you a hint. I'll read another couple lines. Maybe you can get it. This is from a different poem. And you call me up again just to break me like a promise, so casually cruel in the name of being honest. What a powerful line. Anybody know? Nobody's smiling yet, so I don't think anybody knows. That's one of my favorite poets, poets Taylor Swift. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Somebody got it up there. All right. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Um, I don't know why um, she keeps cranking out these wonderful poems we know as songs, uh, but she has a knack for doing all her own writing, and it's impressive to see what she can come up with. Poetry is an interesting thing, and I think one of the, one of the misnomers about poetry is, is, at least with the Psalms, we read them and we think they're literal, and that's something that I struggle with. We read what a poet or a psalmist says, and we go, man, that's literal, and we take it as literal uh, narrative or something. But let me read you a couple more. This is one of my favorites, Charge of the Light Brigade. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the... All, um, in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward, the light brigade. Charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. It goes on and on and on and describes a very famous battle. That, that poem was written by Alfred Lord Tennyson, a famous poet. 
It's an amazing poem. And this poem doesn't just speak to us. It doesn't just speak to the emotions of the situation that the poet is writing. It, it's memory for me. I grew up actually reciting this poem. My mom would enter me into talent contests. I know, I hated them. And her idea of talent was reciting poetry, not writing poetry, no, no, reciting poetry. All my friends got to play the guitar and do cool things. No, I had to recite poetry. But it was a good poem, and it always seemed to spark emotion in people. Here's another one, another favorite poem. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods are these? I think I know. His house is in the valley, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and the frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and doughy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. You can hear the emotion. And, 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 and I just picture, actually, the northeast and the snow falling. And on a morning like this, that could happen, people. We could be thinking of that again this afternoon. That's Robert Frost, an amazing poet, an amazing poem. But the question that we should ask ourselves is, how should we read the Psalms? How should we read the Psalms? It's an important question, and, and I think an important question to ask whenever you're reading anything, an important question to ask is, what is the author trying to accomplish? And see, we switch that in our culture today, and I think it's because we, are, we live in a very literal culture, a culture of news, a culture of immediacy, a culture of um, comfort and immediate gratification. We want to know what happened, and we want to know why it happened, and we want to know the facts, right? Just the facts. And I'll warn you, I'll warn you, if we read the Psalms this way, thinking the psalmist's goal is to prove facts or events, then we're already heading in the wrong direction. And I think that direction can mislead us and make us confused. Now, I think because the Psalms are in the Bible, we tend to read them, we, we tend to read into them. And, and we, we dissect them and we, and we pull them apart and put them back together and see how they make sense. And that's okay as long as we still ask the question, what is the psalmist trying to accomplish? I want you to remember that as we go through uh, Psalms. We're going to do this for seven weeks. Um, and, and it's going to be an amazing journey, but we have to understand poetry communicates emotion. It communicates a lot of things, but primarily it communicates emotion. So it's important that we let these Psalms wash over us and, and, we, and we feel and understand the psalmist's emotion and, and what they're feeling when they wrote it. So with that, I want to read to you Psalm 121. And we're going to put it up on the screen, or you can turn to it. I'm going to be reading it in the NIV. This is one of the song, Psalms of Ascents, or Songs of Ascents. This is what the psalmist wrote. Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he, he who watches over Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the noon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. 
He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. You can hear the psalmist's emotion. You can hear the hope and the joy and the anticipation as the traveler that's singing this song is going into Jerusalem, going to the temple to be with Yahweh. And you can hear the joy and the excitement. There's a lot of questions I have about this psalm. A lot of things that go through my mind when I read it. Ironically, more things go through my mind when I read this than when I read Charge of the Light Brigade or Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. But when we talk about anxiety, I think the psalmist speaks to our heart. We'll just take it in a couple of sections. Verses 1 through 2 is, is kind of section 1, and, and you hear this reference of mountains, the hills. What is he talking about? And there's, there's kind of a debated uh, uh, thing about this. Some people think the high places, that's where they worshiped foreign gods. That's where they worshiped other deities. And as he looks to the mountains and the hills, he becomes afraid and he asks himself, where does my help come from? And it's a reminder that Yahweh, Yahweh is where my help come from, not these other places. There's, a, there's another equal uh, a, a group of people that think the opposite. They think, well, before they worshiped these other deities, Israel actually worshiped Yahweh in these other places before they had established the temple. And so the psalmist is actually looking to these places and he's saying, wow, we used to worship Yahweh, that that's a reminder of who, of where my help come from. Either way, it doesn't really matter. And that's an interesting thing you can do with a poem. It doesn't really matter because the point is, the point the psalmist is making is Yahweh. My help comes from Yahweh. He quickly focuses on Yahweh. And, and Yahweh's the maker of heaven and earth. And, and we read that and we go, oh, isn't that wonderful? And, and maybe we grew up with the understanding that God is the creator and we call him creator. And, and that's just kind of an understanding that we have. But that's not true back then. Back then, whoever heard this psalm and, and wasn't familiar with, with Jewish perspective or theology would go, wait, your God made what again? You see, because the psalmist is actually doing something extraordinary. He's contrasting. And this is one of the beautiful things about poetry and what this psalmist is talking about. He's contrasting Yahweh, his God, with the other gods of the day, the other deities. And most religions back then were polytheistic, which means many gods. They worship many deities. And we know even the Babylonians, they had thousands Literally thousands of deities that they worshiped. Can you imagine how confusing that would be? How much anxiety would, would that drum up in us if we had multiple deities to worship? They had a god for everything. Ashdain, the goddess of grain, not, not of, of wheat grain, but of corn grain. Asher, of the go Asher is the god of war. Irmish is the god of summer. Esra the goddess of plagues, Allura, the goddess of cattle, literally the goddess of cattle. Why wouldn't that be a god and not a goddess? I don't know. Goddess of cattle, Marduk, the god of magic, Sin, the god of the moon. They called that one Sin, which is interesting. Nothing to do with the English version of Sin. If, if someone that didn't know Yahweh heard a Jewish um, traveler or, or temple worshiper say their God made heaven and made earth, they would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, he didn't make the grain. He, he made everything? You're, you're saying your God literally created everything that I think my deities made. And that would spark uh, significant curiosity in these people. 
It's not just a surface contrast between the psalmist, Yahweh, and these other gods. It's a, it's a theological or even a, 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 a bigger a philosophical difference. The neutral position, and this is so important to get when we read the Psalms, the neutral position in all these other religions was that God's thought that humans were puny, insignificant, and in the way. They were annoyed with humanity. And that's what these people thought when they went to their deities to worship. Listen, I know you think I'm this horrible kind of disease of the earth, but if you could just listen to me for a minute, you can hear the desperation, even in the concept of what these religions were like. You had to convince the gods not to punish you or squish you like a bug, let alone bless you. You get the contrast? You wonder why these people could sacrifice their own children to these horrific deities? It's because of this concept. This God will make me suffer if I don't. And they, and they, and they thought that generation after generation after generation. They did all kinds of horrible things just to survive. That was their goal. And you can see the fear and you can feel the anxiety in these other worshipers, these other religions. You were the only one that cared about you. That was, that was standard across the board. Most of these people thought their gods were out to get them unless they convinced them otherwise. I'm getting stressed just thinking about that. My goodness, the confusion. And I would say, I just like to say on, on the side, I would be horrible I would forget things all the time, and I, would, I always beat myself up whenever I forget something. Oh, I got a fingernail. My finger's bleeding. I should have just worshipped the God of fingernails, and oh, I messed up. I'm so sorry. I have to go back and do a, do a sacrifice and all this weird stuff, let alone the big problems that go wrong in life. The psalmist is comparing his faith with what the world thinks. Ask anyone else the question, where does their help come from? And they would answer, well, I guess it's me. Ask, ask any other religion of the day, where does your help come from? And they would go, well, these deities give me things, but I got to convince them. So I guess the help comes from me. I, I have my own back. That's all just section one, people. I'm just getting started. Section two, three through four. Don't, uh, Yahweh does not let your foot slip and this, this Yahweh, this God, does not slumber. And we read that and we go, what in the world is the psalmist talking about? I tend to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me, psalmist, that your God, this Yahweh God, he, he literally does not let your foot slip? I can't believe that. I can't believe that. You know how many people slip on that trail, on that road every day? How, did, how can he say that? And then again in verse 7, he says, the Lord Yahweh will keep me from all harm. Now, some think this is a, as a reference to spiritual destination, that everything in God's control and in God's will is what God intends. And so that's the way that they can think about it this way. But I think this has more to do with the way the psalmist is trusting God. And I think if we dig deeper into this trust, we can understand why this anxiety will start to diminish. I think it has more to do with the psalmist casting his anxieties on God. In section 3, 
This whole God watching contrasted with the other gods ignoring. Did you catch that? God is watching. He's a watcher. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's going to watch me forever. What is, he, what is he saying there? The interesting thing is, this was a real thing back then, sleeping God syndrome. I gave it a medical term. They probably didn't, wouldn't give it a medical term. But the sleeping God syndrome was a common excuse as to why the gods that you were worshiping and trying to convince didn't help you. You did everything that, that God's worshipers or, or whatever told you to do, and still you had no crops. Still you had no children or whatever you were worried about. What's going on? And one of those priests that worships those other gods would say, oh, well, you know what? Actually, this God, he, he tends to sleep a lot. So maybe he's asleep. So, not making this up, there was a Mesopotamian prayer that was commonly used to wake gods up. Could you imagine singing a worship song like that? Our God's asleep. He's going to wake up as long as we sing loud enough, right? That's a good way to get you guys to sing louder crazy. And there's actually scriptural evidence of this. 1 Kings 18, 27, this is the story of Elijah, and, and he's comparing and contrasting his Yahweh with the other gods of the day. And, and you have these Baal worshipers, and you have Elijah, and they're doing their, both their things. And Elijah says, he starts talking trash to the other worshipers. And he's like, it's okay, guys. Don't beat yourself up. Maybe your God's asleep. Yell louder. And you know what they do in the story? They do. They yell louder. <laughs> they believe it. That's trash talking in its earliest form. Love it. The, the psalmist is saying, this Yahweh, he watches over me when other gods are asleep or don't want to help. And you have this sun reference in this section. And, and, and some people think that's allegory for things that were known like the sun shines and we can see, we can see the problems and we can deal with the problems. So my God actually covers the problems that are known and that you can see. But my God also protects you from the moon, which represents the unknown, the things that you don't even understand. Maybe the problems you have in your life that you don't understand or the, or the unforeseen hurdles that are coming down life's, uh, life's path without you even knowing. And, and, and the psalmist is saying, hey, my God covers what's seen and what's unseen. You guys have to worship two separate gods for that, and most of the time, you've got to wake them up even to hear you. My God sees what's coming before I do, and he helps me prepare for it, what's seen and what's unseen. And there's that reference then of keeping from all harm. Come on, psalmist. Really? You really think Yahweh keeps you from all harm? Hmm, that's a tough one to swallow. And then there's this reference of coming and going. And, and we wouldn't know this reading it in English, but there's a common Hebrew verb there, bo and yatza. And these, these verbs are commonly used to describe rhythm. And it's this constant thing that keeps going. And the psalmist is saying, you've got to wake your God up. You've got to just convince him to care. My God is so rhythmic. He watches over me. He watches over my coming. He watches over my going. He watches over me forever. And I don't even have to ask him to. That's Yahweh, forevermore. God is never going to stop protecting me. He's comparing it with other deities today that need convincing. So it's not just that the psalmist is saying, hey, I've learned the secret of convincing my God to care for me. Like, no, no, no. This is what Yahweh is. This is the definition of my God. He is the caring God. He's the concerned God. He's the watcher. He watches and he watches and he watches. There's something here that we need to bring up at this point. 
Jewish theology has three suppositions that the psalmist understands and writes from that perspective. Those three suppositions are this. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is good. And at times in Israel's history, they forget that. They forget that Yahweh is good and he actually has good things in mind for Israel. They forget that and they go, Yahweh, we're starving. We're literally starving to death. How can you be good? And Yahweh's response to Moses is, trust me. And at different times, Israel says, we're in the desert and we're thirsty. We're literally dying of thirst. Yahweh, how can you say you're good? And Yahweh's response is, trust me. That's the first one. Yahweh is good. The second one, Yahweh is in control. Now, how do you have a good God who is in control when bad things happen? How is that possible? How do you rectify those two concepts in Jewish theology or evangelical Christian theology? How do you, referen- how do you recti- rectify those? The third supposition is this. Evil exists. Yahweh lets evil exist for a time. For a season, evil exists. The Psalms, all the Psalms, in fact, all of the Scripture is built on these three concepts. God is good, God is in control, and He, for some reason, lets evil exist for now. The interesting thing, and one of my favorite things about the psalmist, is they don't shy away from this. They don't shy away from the fact that evil exists. Sometimes, really bad things happen to really good people. Sometimes that happens. But this is the difference. This is how you rectify those God is good, God is in control, and bad things still happen. The psalmist does not have a standard for goodness. And if you read through the psalms, you understand, you start to see this. They have a hope that Yahweh meets. So there's no standard. There's no, my life needs to look like this, and my God is so good, he'll make it look like this. There's only Yahweh. There's only what he is. There's no separate standard. And we see this in different parts of Scripture. And a few months ago, we went through the book of Ruth. And if you guys remember, we, we, Ruth throws herself figuratively at Boaz in the middle of the night on the grain floor. And you don't have to read too deeply into the culture to understand she's doing something that's a little risky, right? Little risky. What is she doing? And some people would say, well, Ruth knew that Boaz was a good man. And so Ruth knew that Boaz had this standard. Ruth has this standard of goodness. And Boaz, she knows Boaz is going to meet that standard. But I disagree. I think Ruth's standard of goodness was Boaz. So anything Boaz decided to do, Ruth translated as goodness. And that's a very different type of faith than we have this standard and we think God is going to meet it. And if he doesn't, he's bad. And if he does, he's good. That's not the way the psalmist looks at Yahweh. It's the difference between having a standard and letting your God be the standard. Very different from the other religions of the day. Consider Job. If you've not read through Job, well, if you've not read through Ruth either, but, but Job is an amazing story. Job is a story of someone not doing anything wrong, yet getting a really bad hand dealt to him. And when he calls, when he calls God on not meeting the universal goodness standard, 
Read Job 38 through 41, because God responds. And this is the Josh summary version. This is the, the, you know, the Cliff Notes version. God says, you don't know me. You don't understand me. And I am nothing like you. And, and God says that to Job in, in two and a half chapters worth of, worth of text, and Job melts and says, you are the standard, and I'm sorry. Crazy, crazy faith. In case you need one more, there's many, but consider Isaiah. Yahweh says through Isaiah to Israel, I'm too good, I'm too merciful, and when, when I don't make sense, don't worry. Because, Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You see, Yahweh is something different. Yahweh is a different standard than we could ever get our heads around. The psalmist is just scratching the surface with this. And he's saying, Yahweh defines goodness for me. And whatever Yahweh wants is good. Wow. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is in control. And for some reason, he will explain it to us later, Yahweh lets evil exist for a time. It was true then and it's true now. So in light of that, in light of all that, great story, Josh, what does it mean to us? How do we reduce anxiety today? What's the prescription? Well, if you ask that question, what the prescription is, you might not be happy with the answer. But this is what I want us to know and this is what I want us to walk out of here thinking. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Unlike anything else in this world, Yahweh cares. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. Peter gets it. He says, you want to reduce your stress? You want to reduce your anxiety? Cast them on him because he's the definition of goodness. And it's just not that he's the definition of goodness. This definition of goodness actually cares for you. And you don't have to convince him. You don't have to give him your firstborn. You don't have to give him all the grain in your field. You don't have to do anything but understand this God cares for you. Cast your anxieties on him. And the problem with that, the problem that comes up in my mind immediately, is the risk that maybe God won't protect me the way I want him to. See, I still have this definition of goodness over here that i got to deal with. I've got Yahweh. I know that he doesn't operate on the same playing field. Job makes that very clear. So what do I do? And unfortunately, I don't have a formula. I don't have a prescription that allows me to redefine my goodness to meet Yahweh's goodness because evil exists. And there's the tension. And that's why theologians call our time period the already not yet God died on the cross, Jesus died on the cross, he was raised from the grave, and he is yet to come back and make every wrong right, but he promises to. He promises to. Sometimes he meets my standard of goodness, and I get so happy inside, oh, that's so great. And then sometimes he doesn't. And my foot slips, and harm happens, and I say, God, what did I do, what did I do? And God's response, Trust me. Just trust me. 
This is the only thing that's going to truly reduce our anxiety, understanding that God is the definition of goodness. So why is this so important? The goal is to trust God more. The psalmist uses God's character to inspire us, to inspire more trust. And for anybody that will listen to this song, he hopes it inspires. And it's true for us today. You can worry about your life if you want to. And I know people that worry so much it gives them ulcers. Worry so much that they they almost cannot function in life. They're that stressed. Anxiety has taken over them. And I've had nights, people, (laughs) I've had nights where the the fear and the anxiety rolls over me like a wave, and I go, Lord, what do I got to do? I don't know what to do. And the only thing that keeps me sane is God saying, trust me. Trust me. I'm not done yet. That's what's going to help us reduce anxiety, understanding that God, the maker of heaven and earth, cares for us. If you don't know this, if you don't want to go there, if you want God in this little box, this little standard that you have as goodness, if that's where you want to live, you're going to fall into the same trap. You're going to fall into the same trap that every other religion has fallen into. I'm the only one looking out for me. And I got to convince everybody and everything out there that I am worth taking care of. And you can feel the stress weigh on you if you thought that. I have to fix it all. And if I forget to worship that deity versus that deity, or if I give too much to that one versus that one, my life's out of whack, and oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do something drastic. I have to make it better. No one has my back but me. When Adam and Eve chose to replace God with themselves, they said, I will rely or we will rely on us instead of relying on him. And that's what began this. The whole Bible teaches us that Yahweh is the only one worth trusting. What do we need to do about this? That's the question. What do we do? Okay, so we got the perspective. We got the, the, what the psalmist is trying to accomplish. What do we do now? We're people of action, so what do we do? And I thought, and I thought, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I couldn't come up with just four little cute things to tell you to do, maybe little steps. Sometimes those work, sometimes they don't. This is what I have to say. Psalm 130, the psalmist says, I wait. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman wait for the morning. More than the watchman wait for the morning. That's the only solution. That's the only thing that I can tell you to do because this falls on Yahweh. So wait for him. Let him be in charge of showing you what his goodness looks like. Wait for him. Let him be the one that defines what goodness is for us. Don't think I don't know what I'm asking. This is hard. And this is why God has given us his word to encourage us that he is worth waiting for, that he is worth putting his trust, our trust into. Wait for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is such a scary thought to give up control and to let you define goodness. 
And Lord, I must confess to you, I'm afraid even saying that. What's going to happen? Because you're not like me. You're different than me, and we know that. But Lord, we also know that you call yourself good. So I ask God that you would show us. You would show us the definition of goodness. What's your definition? Help us understand that you are the only thing that's purely good in our life. Thank you for that. And I ask that you would walk with us as we take step after step of trusting you more and more. We love you, and we're scared of what life could look like, but we trust you. In your name, amen.